Hey there, Scott here from Social Energy Presents, and thanks for joining us. We've got a very exciting episode for you to enjoy today, featuring the incomparable Rodney Crowell, an internationally acclaimed songwriter, author, and deeply respected icon among music giants. Rodney is a multi-Grammy award-winning artist with 15 number one hits under his belt. Over the course of his career, Rodney has gracefully blended his own mainstream success as an artist with songs cut by the likes of Emmylou Harris, Johnny Cash, Waylon Jennings, Keith Urban, and many more, making him a master among his peers. He's also penned many beloved songs for artists as diverse as Bob Seger, Etta James, The Grateful Dead, John Denver, Jimmy Buffett, and countless others. Among his many awards, Rodney was honored with the American Society of Composers, Authors, and Publishers with their prestigious Founders Award in 2017. And today, Rodney joins us from his home in Nashville for a very intimate look back at his successes and to bring us up to speed in what he's been working on next. So sit back, relax, and get ready as Social Energy now presents you with your Backstage Pass. So, um, so I want to get into your I want to get into your writing only because I remember talking to Joe Robinson about it, and we were talking about the one thing he learned from you was was hard like what he, what he called hard rhymes, you know, like, yeah. like making a rhyme. Like I remember um, Sammy Kahn was big that way back in the old days, you know, the Brill building type of stuff where his lyrics had to be perfect. It wasn't like you'd have, you know, doubt and, uh, or, or, you know, you'd have moon and then trying to r- make more for word to rhyme with moon as opposed to moon, actually using moon and groom. Yeah, groom. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, groom. That's not a groom is not a hard rhyme. No, with moon. Right. You know, and you, you and now and that's what Joe said. He said you really got on him to really learn how to do, like to really work hard at getting the proper rhymes because it makes more. It, it just makes it a better product in the end. It does, and it also it sounds better to the subconscious of any listener. Mm. Uh, the soft rhymes uh, don't play well in the subconscious, but a really good rhyme, a really good solid rhyme, you know, and you have to work for them. You know, I spend a lot of time trying to trying to find to bend the language to the place where that rhyme comes up and, and it it just has that pristine snap when you hear it. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, have, I teach songwriting. I have these songwriting workshops and, you know, students come in or uh, they're not students, they're participants really. And, and I start with, okay, you know, if you send me some soft rhymes, I'm going to spit it back out at you, you know? And it's like, so you see their eyes start to, they start scratching their heads. Like, what's he talking about? And then, you know, I can, you know, I make them bring printed lyrics, you know, and then I could point, I said, why would you settle for this when it's not a rhyme? You know, you you can't fool Mother Nature. <laughs> it was I read something where you had started working with something, somebody. I don't know if it was Towns or if it was, you know, but some somebody where you were doing a song and they said, "Don't sing it to me. Say it to me like a poem. Like t- t- say it to my eyes." Like well, yeah, well, because well, because that's when the that's when the words are as honest as they can be because they're not hidden behind a melody. 
Well, that would that was Guy Clark. Guy Clark, okay. So you know, I and early in my uh, in the early experience that I was having as a songwriter, Guy was very generous with his time with me, and I would go around to his place with new songs I'd written. I'd play them for him. He'd listen to them, and then he'd say, "Okay, now look me in the eye and recite what you just sang." And a real the real test there was that we look into you know eyes as intense as as his and and come to that soft rhyme or that throwaway you know couplet or something that really doesn't serve the songs you want to avert your eyes you can't you can't deliver the truth you know you can't deliver the truth with soft rhymes and with with you know uh couplets that don't serve the song or yeah or, or just a basic lazy lyric lazy lyric <laughs> yeah. i've never tied those two words together but that's good a lazy lyric i'll, t- I'll take credit on the next song <laughs> you can you can i'll 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 gladly give it <laughs> i was gonna say getting back to that so do you, are you a guy that writes every day or do you write with with when you're inspired i I know you. I know you're not a mechanical writer. I know you don't write for a project. You write from your heart. But is it something you do every day? Uh, like that's your work. You wake up in the morning and you write songs. Yes. And so, how many songs do you feel? Well, it's, that's hard to say. That's a dumb question. I was going to say how many songs do you feel you write in a week, but that's not fair. I mean, I mean, you probably throw away a thousand more songs in a month than most people ever write. <laughs> no, not so. If I'm not on the road, if I'm not touring, you can bet in the morning I'm here in my studio, which is where I am now, and I'm working, I'm writing. And, you know, no, I, it's like I've spent 30 years on songs. And I've, you know, and... And you know, there's one of my most uh, successful songs is is "Shame on the Moon" that Bob Seger recorded. Right, that's where he I made, first heard about you. Actually, he made a big hit out of it. I've only recently uh, become satisfied with the last verse. I never liked the last verse. You know, I asked him. I said, "Man, how'd you sing that last verse?" And he said, "That's a great last verse." And I said, "Not for me." And I was never satisfied with that last verse. What bothered you? It was poor writing. It was lazy writing. <laughs> lazy lyric. It was lazy lyric. Thank you. <laughs> uh, it was, and the pro- that was that song was the last time I ever wrote with a television on because I was strumming that one to six minor chord and I hit on that B flat change with a ooh shame on the moon I said oh I got something here but the television was on and right in the middle of you know getting that chorus to work the way I did and was ready for the third verse the Jimmy Jones report from Ghana flashed on the television and broke my concentration and I didn't, I didn't get the last verse in that first creative burst. And, um, but I couldn't turn away from the, you know, the Jimmy Jones debacle down there. 
So that's the last time I've ever been anywhere near a television when I'm writing. And, you know, I cobbled together a last verse, but, and recorded it myself. And Bob then got it. And I never, I always thought that last verse was, fell short of the mark. And quite a few people recorded it. And once one songwriter in particular recorded it, uh, whose name I will leave out of it because he's no longer living. He said, God, Rodney, I wish I'd have been around to help you with that last verse. <laughs> and, and I said, man, I threw my arms around him. I said, man, finally, somebody who agrees with me, the last verse doesn't work. So he, he recognized that it wasn't your full potential. He sure did. And wow. uh, he's the only one. And uh, so that was 1979 is when I wrote it, the, the beginning of it. And it was... 2019 when i finally got a last verse that i like so was that 40 years yeah 40 years to get that last verse so you've redone it with the last verse now i've been i actually i retired the song after after bob seger did it mm -hmm. for two reasons for the main reason was that he sang it so well and I mean, he he made it iconic, and his performance of it was beautiful. It's a great chorus on that song, and it, you know, it's a combination of a great chorus and a great singer that made it the hit that it was. But once I got that last verse, you know, I brought it back into to my live performance show uh, the end of last summer. Okay. It was the first time I'd, I had performed it live in 35, 40 years. Wow. And what band were you with when you first wrote it? Oh, that was uh, right after probably my first album. So I don't know if the Cherry Bombs were... Yeah, the, uh, yeah I had a band at the time called the Cherry Bombs. That's the one with Vince Gill, yeah. Vince Gill and Larry London and Emery Gordy and Hank DeVito. That must have been a great band. Oh, it was a great band for sure. I mean, those Vince, were the, those were the days, you yeah. know, when when you know Warner Brothers had you know artist development department. Yeah. So they, you know, I made a record, a couple of records. They say, look, you know, we're not worried about putting out a single. You know, we'll we'll give you some money to put a band together. You go out on the road and play, and let's see who your audience is. Right. That's a luxury that artists don't have anymore. I know. It's, it's so sad the way it works now. It's all so mechanical. Uh, there's a, a, a great songwriter up in Canada. He has a band called Chilliwack. His name is Bill Henderson. And there was an interview with him uh, and back a few years ago. You know, and uh, they said, well, what do you think is one of the greatest things about the music business that's developed in the past while? And he said, well, the very fact that you can record an album in your bedroom from beginning to end is amazing. He said, well, what's the worst thing that's happened to the music business? He said, well, the very fact that you can record an album from beginning to end in your bedroom, because <laughs> it's true, there used to be a nurturing that happened that doesn't happen anymore. And everybody, you know, you talk to every Joe down the street, hey, I've got an album out. Well, yeah, but, you know, what is it, 6,000 albums a day are loaded up to Spotify or something like that? I mean, mm. where do you rise above the muck, you know? Yeah, yeah, I know. Yeah. I know. It's, you know, and those days are gone. You know, I, I consider myself lucky that I came along when I did because that uh, the mindset that goes with that kind of support and nurturing, good word, nurturing, is uh, 
I'm still thriving today because of it. It's because, you know, Warner Brothers didn't have to turn my art into, you know, a windfall overnight. They right. were willing to take time with it. They were willing to Sad, ride it. Sadly for them, it wasn't until I moved over to Columbia Records that, you know, I paid off. But my my gratitude for Warner Brothers at that time is, you know, intact to this day. I'm grateful. Right. And so when you went to Columbia, was was that after you were with the hot band? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay, good. Well, I, I wanted to get back into your into the roots of your life, uh, but there's so many questions I want to ask you about songwriting. For one thing, you're just such a craftsman. The very fact that, you know, I, I mean, like, where do you pull your inspiration from? You know, the typical question, but sometimes there are situations where, let's say I'm driving in a car, and I don't know if it, they call it, like, a, a beta state or whatever. When you're driving and you're just driving, and sometimes the radio will be playing, and an entire other melody and lyric will come into my mind because I'm actually not thinking about it. It's like sure. my mind is relaxing. Does that ever happen to you as well? Sure, of course. Like when yeah. there, there's so much, there's so much, uh, there's so much noise going on, and yet out of all this noise, distraction, you're driving, the radio's on, people are talking, and you can hear this thing rising out, like you know, rising out of the ashes, of, like a phoenix, you know. And I'm just mm -hmm. trying to figure out what that how that works and why it works, you know? Well, the subconscious is a great tool, you know, for, for songwriting, for, uh, and, and, and to access inspiration too. And, you know, to really drop down into that subconscious mode or to, to have access to that part of your creativity, you really do have to be relaxed in some way and driving, is a is a really great way to uh, to compose. You know, I like to drive and compose in my head and try to uh, try to remember without writing down what I'm composing in my head, so that the next time I get near my iPhone to record it or or to write it down, that it's it's already a, the the rhymes are already solid and. Uh, and I, if the melody is good enough, I'll remember it. Yeah. Interesting. I remember uh, something Paul McCartney just said recently. He said they didn't plan to write memorable songs. The fact is they had no tape recorders. So the songs had to be good enough that they would remember them themselves. Yeah. Yeah, I know. You know, I which know. is, it, it, and it's true, the simplicity of it. You know, now we rely on, like you just said, the iPhone. I mean, if I'll, I'll have an idea, put it on my iPhone or or throw a microphone up in my studio quickly and run it by. And I'll come back two days later. I don't know what I've written, you know, which is shameful. You yeah. know, it's like, well, it, it's, you still, it is a good tool though, that if you have a decent melody and you have recorded it and you can get back to it and learn it for what it was, then it becomes useful. But you know, that thing of, of just, playing the guitar, making some chord changes and singing loud until you remember it. And that's your song. You know, that's a way, you know, she loves you. Yeah. 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 Sounded like, you know, yeah. it's just, we, we made up a song, Yeah, you know, and it, Hank Williams was like his, his music to me was like that. It was so immediate, you know, 
Yeah. Today I passed you on the street and my heart fell at your feet. Well, you know, you didn't spend a lot of time conjuring up that image. You just started singing it. Might have spent a lot of time writing that last verse. Right. But, you know, when here's what I say about it. You know, when I was when I was a young man in my twenties, sometimes I was capable of catching lightning in a bottle. And and in my twenties, inspiration would come in big doses. And one of the challenges that I faced was getting it all in that first burst. And uh, sometimes I was successful, you know, I got I ain't living long like this kind of all in the first ver first burst of creativity. But there are other songs until I gain control again was like that. Uh, but other songs, I had to learn how to make that last verse as good and as solid and as free as those the first verse and chorus that came just out of the blue the gift from out of the blue to cobble together a last verse that stands alongside the gift from out of the blue if you know what i'm saying right right yeah that is. so do you ever take a break from writing and if you do is it hard to get your chops back because there is a there's a rhythm that you have when you're writing because i mean even like i you know i i I'm 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 a real fledgling writer, writer, but like I noticed that when I am writing, I get better ideas. Like let's say I'm writing, working on a project where it needs I need to write a number of songs. I find they actually they they connect the dots with themselves. Like when because I'm my brain is already in that mode, ideas come better and quicker. Mm -hmm. Now is that is that the same thing with you? Do you find when you take a break, did you come back, like? with that uh, lightning in the bottle attitude, or does it take you a while to get it back? Uh, lightning in the bottle, uh, at the age I am now, the years that I've been doing it, uh, lightning in a, I, I don't get my inspiration from lightning in a bottle now. I get my inspiration from, uh, from dedication to the work. Okay. So I, I, I don't take a break from writing. What I do is sometimes I go on the road, you know, touring for extended periods of time, which most of the time I'm not writing then. But one thing I trust about it is that night after night, I'm singing 20, 25 songs. So I am using that part of my subconscious mind and my, my creativity to play these songs that I've written for people. And so when I come in off the road and I get back here in my studio and, and get back to work writing, I've been writing the whole time. Right. So, so I never take a break from writing and I've never, and I do not acknowledge writing writer's block. Um, I don't Expl give it, explain that. I don't give it, I don't give it any power, power. I just simply do not acknowledge that it that there is for me a such thing as writer's block all i'm what's happening is is the reservoir is filling up and organizing itself so that i can access what needs to happen and uh and i carry on there's no i don't have writer's block even if i'm not writing that's it's amazing you say that because there, there's something that about convincing yourself of something. And I can relate it to this. I remember back playing cover music years back and having a terrible time remembering lyrics to songs. He said, I just don't believe 
that it's hard to memorize songs and it made it easier. Mm-hmm. And I went, cause I was beating myself up all the time. Like, I, like, why can't I memorize this? Why can't I memorize this? And I'd have lyric sheets on the floor for weeks sometimes, you know? Yeah. I, and he just said, and he just said, he just said, I, I decided that it's, it's easy to memorize songs. And as soon as I did that, I could memorize them right away. And I went, hmm, never thought about that. So I did that. And I wouldn't take a lyric sheet up. And of course, the very first night, I'd blow a couple of lines, but I never blew them again. I go back and consult the lyric sheet after. But it's, I think I'm sort of relating it to the writer's block thing, is that if you convince yourself there is no writer's block, it's, it might go away on its own. Yeah, well, yes, or quite possibly it just doesn't exist. I don't know that I, I've, I've never, here's an example. Um, as I said, I have, I've spent 18 years writing songs. I've spent 30 years writing songs. Um, and in the time that I spent trying to uncover that last verse, um, if it took 30 years, it was just because I hadn't found it. It wasn't because I was blocked. I just hadn't found it yet. So I kept coming back. And my favorite, people ask me, what is your most important song? And I said, the song that I haven't finished yet, because that's the song that brings me back to work every day. You know, it's like I'm working on a song right now. I've been working on it for two months, uh, actually writing a lyric for to someone's melody as you know to help them out at least two months i've been working on this one chorus um and i won't stop until i get it and you know it's like you could you could throw a wrench in your works and say well i just can't get it i got writer's block no i just haven't found it yet right well, I remember hearing a, a, a story about Paul Simon writing Sounds of Silence, which is still a wonderful lyric to this day. You know, it's a oh, yeah, it's one of the finest bits of writing ever. Yeah. And apparently he took months to write almost each line because he knew how important it was going to be. It was like he just felt how important that song was going to be in his career. Mm-hmm. And it took it took him months and months to write that song. He really, really concentrated on it. But but then another song like Homeward Bound came like that, you know? Yeah. So. That. It happens both ways. Yeah, exactly. So, um, so getting back, okay. So there's so many things I want to talk to you about. I'm, I'm just afraid I'm going to dwell on one thing, but I want to get back to your 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 childhood. Now, when you grew up, so you were you had a musical family. You had a musical family. Your your dad sang, mm-hmm. and your was it your uncle that played banjo or something like that? My grandfather. Your grandfather, and and so and and the very first instrument was you playing drums. And I, if I'm, if I recall, your father got you a set of drums, and within a week you were playing in a band with him. Mainly, yeah, well, mainly then, because they said they said he didn't want to pay for musicians. He figured he could get you for free. <laughs> that's very true. Yeah, yeah. My dad was, my dad was a probably a better singer than me. But he, my dad didn't have, uh, but he did, he wasn't a writer. My mother was more of a writer than my dad. My my mother played with with words, um, but my father had a had a savant memory of songs. He could hear he could hear a Roy Acuff song once or twice and have it. So he had a deep well. Uh, his repertoire was deep, from Appalachian Dead Baby to wartime hit country songs to fifties Hank Williams. 
So I grew up around that. And, he, you know, he wanted to be a Grand Ole Opry star. My father did. But, you know, he grew up during the Depression on a, in a sharecropped farm, and he, he didn't know how to put it all together. But he did have bands. And uh, he's, you know, scraped by playing in honky-tonks and what have you. And he had a, he had a drummer who was blind that couldn't grow too much with him. So he came home with a really cheap set of pawn shop drums on a Tuesday and uh, kind of showed me the rudiments of a shuffle, got a kitchen chair and some phone books and said, here's what you do, watch my foot. And Friday night I was playing in a honky tonk. <laughs> How, old were you? How old were you? I, I was 11. 11. But the thing of it is, I mean, we should not even entertain the notion that I played well because I didn't, <laughs> it was, it, it was, it was a train wreck, <laughs> but, but, you know, and my dad had a couple of musicians who were, you know, embarrassed at what was happening, but he just, he just plowed through. He just, I, maybe I inherited that the thing about writer's block, you know, he's like, well, my kid's back there playing drums and he can't play drums, but I don't care. I'm going to plow through. I'm going to do setting the woods on fire right now. You know, here it uh, goes. You know, you don't like it, lump it. <laughs> so now when did you start playing guitar? Soon as I heard the Beatles. So you were, how old were you then? Oh, 13. 13. And so yeah. now do you think your dad, because your dad had so many different, let's say, tools in his toolbox musically uh helped you with your your writing and because you write in lots of different genres you're not just a you're not just a, a, a an americana or a country artist you do a lot of different things sure and do you think that's maybe it stems from that you've had an appreciation for everything well i've made that my edu part of my education you know in my adult life too to really familiarize myself with a with a broad spectrum of music you know from jazz to classical to to the blues you know in in recent years i've been really trying to discover my own in, inner blues man mm -hmm. and uh we'll see how that's going but in turn my i think the biggest blessing that my father gave me except well i'll tell you this when i when i arrived in nashville with my my pal Donovan, we were a duo, and and we realized that you know we didn't have the recording deal that we thought we were going to have. I I kind of stumbled into a scene that Guy Clark was kind of the curator of, and uh, Towns Van Zant was around, and Mickey Newberry and and Dave Loggins and and Steve Earle came around, and and Skinny Dennis and all these guys. I didn't have any good songs that I had written, but because of my father, I knew some really obscure Appalachian dead baby songs. And I knew songs like you got to have a license and, uh, you know, kind of folk country songs from, from the depression era. And, and guy and was w appreciated the fact that I had a knowledge of, that kind of songwriting and those kind of songs to where I think it made him more inclined to, to give me his attention because I had something worth, I had a knowledge of something that was worthwhile while I was learning to write my own songs. And, you know, and that came from my dad and my grandfather, 
those, you know, rabbit songs like Rabbit in the Graveyard and May I Sleep in Your Barn Tonight, Mister, and, and uh, you know, you got to have a license and all of these obscure bits of clever writing. Um, I was blessed with that. Now, I, I heard a story that because you, you mentioned Towns Van Zandt and, and uh, of course, and Guy and all that stuff. But how you ended up with that was through Jerry Reed. And it was really an odd way that Jerry Reed saw you. You were apparently, okay, I don't know if I'm right in this story, but I'm going to try my best. You were playing in a lounge and the owner of the lounge said, you don't play original material or I'm going to fire you. But you I only want to hear cover music. That's so bas- so basically you were playing this cover music and then there was some sort of a falling out where you got upset and you played one of your songs and sure enough, you got fired, but who was in the audience was Jerry Reed and he heard your song and loved your writing. Yeah. You're, you're close on the story. Okay. okay. Go ahead. First of all, I had a girlfriend. Okay. And, uh, town seduced her. And, uh, and I found out from Susanna Clark that this had happened. So in anger and, and angst, I wrote a song called You Can't Keep Me Here in Tennessee. And while I, and I had a gig at a, at a, uh, in an afternoon happy hour where I was forbidden to play original songs, but I was angry and frustrated. And I, at the end of my set, I just said, here's a song I just wrote in defiance and I sang it. Well, my boss came down one aisle and fired me and Jerry Reed's manager came down the other aisle. There were two aisles to get to that little stage and overheard him firing me. And he said, oh, good. Well, you know, uh, we want to record that song tomorrow and we want to offer him a job as a songwriter. (laughs) Wow. I mean, you can't make that up. Holy smokes. That happened. I got fired and hired in a matter of five seconds. <laughs> well, you know, thank God for bad for bad luck, huh? Yeah. Wow. And if it wasn't for Towns Van Zandt. Yeah. <laughs> thank you. I'm grateful, you know. Don't think I'm not grateful. Yeah, that went a long way. Yeah. And, you know, and, and later on, I, 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 you know, I said, hey, man, to Towns, I said, thanks for that. <laughs> it wasn't for you. I wouldn't have gotten the gig. That's and, you know, amazing. and then, the, and then the next day, I mean, literally the very next day I went down to RCA studio and of course being young and nervous about it all, I got there early and I walked into studio a and Chet Atkins was sitting at the console. Wow. Just, he was there by himself. And so I'm tiptoeing in going, Oh my God, this Chet Atkins. What do I do? What do I say? And he just looked at me and he said, did you write this song we're going to record today? And I said, yes, sir. He said, well, come over here. Let me show you how we're going to do this. And man, would it have been a great time, you know, for a cell phone or something so I could have called everybody I knew mm-hmm. and tell them what's happening. But that's the way it started. You know, I've been lucky. Wow. And, and so did, was, did you like his production? Of? Of of your song? I had not formed any opinions about production at that time. Right. I guess, yeah, you were just sort of thinking of it as a guitar and, and voice. So when yeah. somebody when somebody adds to it, it's like, wow, this is pretty cool. Yeah, there's my song, you know. It's like right. Jerry Reed singing my song. And it's, it was a style of production 
that uh, I would not adopt later on when I got, you know, when I started producing music myself, you know, it was, I, I it was, it was not a, it was a formula that I didn't think was very fresh. Let me put it that way. Okay. Um, was it like lush? Not so lush, but sort of stock. Oh, I see. Okay. So he was writing for the masses, essentially, or producing for the masses, I should say. Yeah, they were, they were in truth, and this is the music business as long as we've known it. There's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of stuff that gets recorded, uh, you know, you know, to meet the expectations, you know, more, uh, you know, more the shareholders now than in 1972. But even then, you know, it was a business and, you know, we're, we're not, you know, it's not art over commerce here. It's commerce first and then art. Yeah. yeah. You know, I, I've, I've been lucky enough that I, I've been able to keep a roof over my head with varying degrees of commerce and art. Yeah. You haven't had to sell yourself short, essentially. I have, I've sold myself short before, but that was on me. It wasn't on somebody else. Uh, meaning like, in other words, you didn't live up to your own expectations. Is that what you're saying? I made a couple of records in the nineties that were trick strictly aimed at trying to recapture something I did in the late eighties so that, uh, the record company could make money and, and it didn't work for me in any way, shape or form. And it was a low, it was a low point in my career, but I, you know what? I learned a valuable lesson from it. It was probably, it's good that it happened. It was a valuable lesson because I found my way of, of fulfilling what I think my potential is. And that's what I've been doing for the last 20 something years, you know? Yeah. Well, it makes sense. Sometimes the hardest lessons are, are the best lessons. Sure. You know? Yeah. Um, so getting back to it. So, uh, and, uh, okay. So, the Emmy Lou Harris uh, connection. Now she recorded one of your songs and then wanted to meet you and then got you into the band. Was it that simple or was it, what, is there a backstory behind that? Well, of course there's always a backstory, you know? Uh, well, you know, it's Ann Murray, her band. Uh, she had a band leader named Skip Beckwith. God bless him. I don't know if you ever came across Skip Beckwith from, no. from I know the uh, name only. Skip Beckwith, you know, he was from Halifax and, but he was Ann's band leader in the early seventies. He came through Nashville looking for a guitar player who happened to be a friend of mine uh, to uh, recruit uh, Lenny Bro. Lenny had, Bro? Lenny there's Bro. A, there's a Lenny know, Bro angle in this? Well, Lenny Bro had reached the end of his rope with Ann and the band and skip came to nashville looking for a particular guitar player who happened to be a friend of mine ah. and and they met at my little crib that i had at the time and and skip being this great personality he said so you write songs do you and I, I, he said you got any i could take back to toronto and i said i, get, I handed him a tape that he was taking to ann and but Brian O'Hearn was Ann's producer who had just been hired to produce Emmy Lou. Ah, perfect. 
And uh, so the tape wound up in the Emmy Lou pile instead of the Anne Murray pile. And according to Emmy, she listened to a bunch of songs and mine was the last one they got to. And there were three or four songs on there that she wanted to record. And, and she sent out a, they found me somehow down in Texas because I really did leave Tennessee after I got fired and had a couple of songs recorded. Uh, but I went up to Toronto and spent uh, the autumn of 74 in Toronto and went down to D.C. with Brian Hearn, and that's where I met Amy Lou. Now, here's here's something in the story that wouldn't happen today. Is, uh, I went back to Austin. That's where I was going to live. I decided I was going to live forever in Austin. So Emmy was had a band called the Angel Band, and she was on her way to Los Angeles, and she stopped in Austin to perform at Armadillo World Headquarters. And she had my number, so she called me. She said, hey, you know, you know, I've, she had already recorded a couple, uh, couple of my songs. She said, come on out, you know, and sing, let's sing, sing with me. And I said, okay. So I went and sat in and sang a couple of songs during her show with her. And when it was over, she's, here's, here's the story. She said, hey, I'm going to L.A. tomorrow, and I've got a spare ticket. You want to go? <laughs> so I said, yeah, I want to go. And so I don't remember who's, who the spare ticket belonged to, but I flew first class to Los Angeles the next day with Emmy on somebody else's ticket and stayed for seven years. And, you know, in a, <laughs> in a couple of months, she was putting together a band called the hot band and unbeknownst to me, I was her first recruit. Oh, you were, for, Oh, I didn't realize that. I thought you were added to the band. No, no, I was a, oh, first, wow. it, for a while. The hot band was just me and Emmy wow. singing, sitting on the floor, singing duets. Isn't that great? Yeah. So it wouldn't happen today because I couldn't fly to LA with somebody on somebody else's ticket. Right. <laughs> yeah, very true. Remember the good old days where you could actually see somebody off at the gate? Yeah. Oh gosh. That's Crazy. how that that's how I got in the hot bin. Wow. So uh, I gotta I wanna delve into something. I, I hope it's not too precious on you, but uh, I know that you ended up with a bout of global global amnesia. Transient global amnesia. Indeed and, and, I did. And 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 but I think it's okay to talk about because you actually wrote a song about it. Sure. But so can you explain what that is and what actually happened? Sure. It was October 9th, 2020. Where I live, there's, I, I have hiking trails around where I live, up and down hills and what have you. And most of the exercise I get is hiking these hills. They're pretty steep. And so I went out one morning, I came back and, uh, and I was getting ready with Joe, Joe Robinson, who you mentioned earlier, and a couple of my Aussie guitar buddies, Jed Hughes and Joe Robinson were coming over and we were going to arrange a song to record the very next day. Well, I was making a cup of tea to get ready to go to work. And that's the last thing I remember for six hours. But the ninth time I asked my wife, Claudia, if I had walked the loop 
that morning, which is what we call hiking the trails around the house. She thought I was having a stroke. So she got me in the car and took me to the emergency room nearby. And, uh, and it was, she thought I was having a stroke because I just kept asking her over and over and over and over again. I even, she even, I looked at my phone. She, she told me I looked at my phone and I said, who's Jed and Joe? Because there were texts coming from him. And she said, oh, those are your musician friends and that you're getting ready for a recording session tomorrow. And, and I said, I make records. Wow. And this is, she told me this story, you know, so I don't remember that. But I woke up in an MRI and uh, here's the thing, transient global amnesia. There's a hospital in Williamson County, Tennessee, near where I live. Pretty good size hospital with emergency room. They get two cases a month, transient global amnesia. On average, they get two cases a month and 98% of the time it never happens again. But it happened to me so when they diagnosed, they said, this is transient global amnesia. He's going to be all right, but I'm, but we're going to keep him overnight. So I, well, I, you know, I said, Claudia, I can't eat this hospital food. So will you go get me something good to eat? And if you don't mind, go by the house and get my notebook because my brain is scrambled in a way that I don't even recognize it something good can happen from this. And so as it was, I had my notebook and the next morning, the first thing that happened when I woke up, my daughter, my youngest daughter sent me a photograph via text message of a sunflower going on a raft in the Thames River in the mid 1950s, just a black and white photograph on, the, on a cell phone. Boy, that was, that was the opening door, a sunflower growing on a narrow raft in a fog bank on the Thames. Wow. <laughs> and from, from then I would, and I would just, I wrote verses and verses and verses. By the time they released me from the hospital, I had all the verses and I came home, found the guitar, you know, and, and found the right melody to find the right chord changes and structure, got it together and then recorded it the next day. So it was a, it was a three day affair and, uh, it was a joyful occasion. It scared me, you know, deeply when I came to this, like, wow, I had no idea where I was, but look at this song that I got. This is cool. <laughs> and it's, it's not often that you can record a song while you're still in the trance state that you were in when you wrote it. And I was still three days after it happened, I was still in that trance state. So the recording I made of it is one of the most pure recordings I've ever made in terms of bringing, of actually recording the composition in the, in the, the tone and vibe that it came to me in. This trance state you speak about, it's like it was just you coming back to yourself from where you were? Wow, it was like somebody slipped me some powerful LSD. Wow. You know, and, and I got to be in that head state without having to endure that <laughs> <Yeah>. long, <laughs> you know, dark night of the soul. 
Right. So getting back to, uh, once again, okay, so are you lyrics first, melody first, or does it switch back and forth? It's all of the above. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, melodies come, chord changes, tones, you know, the a voicing in a chord can trigger a song. Sometimes it's, you know, this morning I was out listening, I was walking the loop and listening to Nico Case. Right. And the sound of a few words that she put together made me think of these other words that that might be the start of a song so it comes you know i don't have to tell you it comes from everywhere yeah yeah are you gonna slip lazy lyric in there somehow <laughs> yeah i think so <laughs> yeah no i i it's interesting i uh once again relating back to paul mccartney he had i didn't realize this because it I, I I was actually kind of floored by it that all my loving was actually a piece of pro, uh, of poetry that he put to music. I was assumed the song came first and the birds filled in the blank, but that was actually a letter he wrote to his girlfriend in a, in the form of a poem, and then he put music to it. Yeah, well, you know, I I can imagine, you know, I can imagine being twenty one, twenty two, and you know, booging off to Hamburg or something, and. Wanting to make sure you, you you mark your territory for when you get back. Exactly. You know, yeah. you know, it's like, yeah, this is, you know, it'll take out a little insurance on this situation. It's a good way to do it. So you were, <laughs> so you were married to Roseanne Cash. What was your relationship uh, with Johnny? Was he a, a good guy? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Guy. And, you, and you guys got along well. Well, you actually did some work with him. Yeah, quite a bit. And, and uh, I, walk, I walk the line revisited. Yeah. yeah. I, I remember Randy Bachman says, I walk the line is the best love song in the world because it never says the word love in it once. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's also that particular reason I wrote that song was because, you know, I heard it for the first time when I was about six years old. And it was pretty much like transient global amnesia for me. It's just, I could not. I could not put my finger on the prototype of where that particular piece of music came from. Somehow intuitively around age six, I understood that this is not normal. And that piece of music, I mean, when you think about the way that's composed. Oh, the key changes. Key changes. Yeah. Modulating down in the beginning of a song. Yeah. I mean, it was brilliant, brilliant. And it wasn't, it wasn't from this paradigm. It was from somewhere else. Yeah. And and I always and and I wrote I wrote the verses to that song, just recreating that morning when I heard it first on a coming out of a dashboard radio of a nineteen forty nine Ford. But when I I couldn't come up with a good chorus, but I had a melody for the chorus. And one day it dawned on me that his words would work in my melody. And uh, I stuck them in there and then called him and said, hey, I need for you to help me record this. So he came to the studio thinking that he was going to sing some version of I Walk the Line that he'd been singing for 35, 40 years, you know. And then I started teaching him a new melody with his words. He kind of got a little testy with me there and said, son, you got a lot of nerve. 
and, and I, you know, it was the first time it had dawned on me that I actually did have a lot of nerve just, you know, hijacking his lyric and putting it in my song. But then he went out in the studio and sang the, you know what, out of it. And it was, it was beautiful. Right. Well, well, the Trent Reznor thing with Hurt, with him, that was such an iconic moment in music. Yeah, it was. It was unbelievable. I I would say that that moment was the same as the first time I heard I Walk the Line. It's like, this is beyond what we can point to as a starting place. This is just a, this, this is a visitation from another planet that's just landed on our planet and we, and we can listen to it, but we can't know how it got here or what it is. Yeah. Book ends and then somewhere in the middle is the man in black, you know, it's that whole persona. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, he always seemed like a, a, a wonderful person and been through the been through the ringer as everybody knows everybody's watched that uh the the johnny cash story or heard of the johnny cash story at the very least i mean he he definitely had lived a hard life but yes, uh, he did but he said but he certainly seemed like just a, a wonderful person when you, you hear him in interviews and stuff he was a cool cat you yeah. know and and he was uh, away from the uh the larger than life persona that he's so easily and gracefully projected he was you know he was a prankster he was a kid you know what people don't know i mean he's 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 mount rushmore you know but but you know i was lucky and him being the being the grandfather of my kids you know i'd watch him get down on his hands and knees and make funny noises and play with it with his grandchildren you know it's like that's not the guy on Mount Rushmore. That that's some dude from Arkansas. Right, right. That's that's uh, that's remarkable. And and what a love story, you know. <laughs> God, uh, just unbelievable. That 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 marriage and that relationship was just something else. And didn't didn't they die within a very short time of each other? Pretty close. Yeah, June went first. Yeah, which made if you knew John and June the way it worked, it was. Uh, I mean, I I. Actually, I said to Carlene, you know, June's daughter, Carlene Carter, you know, we were talking about it and I said, well, you know, June had to go first, you know, because she had to be there when John gets there, you know, because she ran the show. Right. Yeah, I, I sort of I got that in the, that idea from things that I've read and, and watched, of course, you never know. You never know how much embellishment there is on movies. But when you read, you usually get a better perception of things. You know. Yeah. Hopefully. Well, it's a movie, you know. Yeah, exactly. They got they got some things right and they got some things really wrong. So, but you know what you're gonna do? It's a movie. It's, yeah. You know. So, um, so what are you working on now? I mean, you're, I, 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 by the way, I have to thank you for this interview because I was looking at your uh, your tour schedule. You got a, a fair amount of dates coming up, pretty quick. I do, I do and, yeah. And I'm really lucky to have you at this point. Yeah, you caught this is about the only day you could have me. Um, I'm working on a uh, coffee table book of my lyrics, about 150 songs with uh, some prose that I wrote some backstory. You know, I wrote I wrote the story of Towns and my girlfriend and Cherry Reed and 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 other stories. It's kind of backstories with some of the songs and uh, That'll be out in the fall. 
Well, um, that's, well, that's good for us. We'll be able to put a link into the uh, into this this yeah. podcast. You know, we can put a link into the podcast for you. Yeah, the, 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 the book is called Word for Word, Rodney Crowell Lyrics. And uh, so I'm, I've been working on that. There's art and photography and all kind of stuff. And um, tomorrow I'm working uh, one of my Aussie uh, friends is I'm producing some tracks on on him and uh, Jed Hughes, who was who was the Emmy Lou Harris and Rodney Crowell lead guitar player from the band that we had in twenty. 15 16 17 there okay and uh otherwise you know trying to help other there's some people that i'm helping develop their own thing in this world where there's no artist development you know record companies you know we can't write a check to help somebody along but i can i can help them try to get their song strong enough that they get a shot at it. You oh, know? There, there you are. That's your giving back to Warner Brothers right there. Yeah, that is. Yeah, yeah and, very good. And I enjoy that. Uh, it makes me I feel good about helping somebody along because I had a lot of help. Yeah, mentoring is always a great thing. For one thing, with mentoring, you always end up learning more yourself anyway. True. That's you know? very true. I mean, whenever I show somebody something on the guitar, I, I become better. It's a weird yeah. thing because it goes back to the basics. I don't know how that works, but it, I, I definitely always learn something more than they have, it seems. It kind of goes with that sting lyric, you know, if you love somebody, set them free. Yeah. You know, it's 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 the gift of giving. Yeah. There's, a, there's another great lyricist, that boy. Holy smokes. Sure. I mean, and, and that, that song, Russians, that just has made a resurgence with the, what's going on now. You know, and it's just, yeah. you know, that was done during the Cold War. And yet here, here we are, you know. Yeah. Unbelievable. Here yeah. we are. Here we yeah. are. But anyway, what a what an absolute pleasure talking to you, man. It's been fantastic. I know you. I know you have to run. You you had, <laughs> you're so busy. I'm glad you were able to scrape this time together for us. Yeah. Well, happy to do so, you know, and uh, Thank you for reaching out, you know. Um, yeah, well, thank you for everything you've done. I mean, what you did for Corolla, sending her that email, you know, after losing her husband and and an email coming from you in, in, with regards to Chris and, and your old guitar, that meant mm -hmm. the world. That 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 was a wonderful, wonderful thing you did. Yeah, well, yeah, well, it was, I was really happy that that information found me. I was sad to hear that the gentleman had passed on. But it was it was really great to know that the guitar found somebody that loved it. Yeah, well, it, I, it's back in Dave Reimer's hands now. Dave was the guy who actually sort of orchestrated the deal of Chris getting that guitar. So I guess when Chris passed away, I think Dave inherited the guitar. So it's in good well, hands. You just tell Dave that at one point, chickens lived inside that guitar. <laughs> <laughs> I will. And you'll get a blast out of that because he's got a great sense of humor. So fantastic, Rodney. Thank you very much for your time. I really, really appreciate it. You All got right. it. Thank Take you. Take care. Stay well. You too. Thanks for joining us. Check out our many other episodes and vignettes for more great content. And please like, share, and subscribe 
and become a member at socialenergypresents.com to access all our content and earn valuable energy points just for watching.